For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome to Hard Tell. Okay, let's go back overseas, talk a little bit of some really interesting stuff going on in the UK that, yes, it's a little different, but there's some universal principles to apply there. We've got Jack Rowlett back with us, Young Voices contributor. He's a writer and commentator coming to us from Nottingham, England, of Robin Hood fame. How are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. It's good to be here. Looking so forward to discussing it, Britain. Yeah, I am too. So we, we you got to mess with the NHS National Health System going over there right now. Everything from ambulance response times, you got nurses strikes, now you've got a doctor shortage. This looks like a real big hot mess on the outside, but the real problem with this is the more you look at it, it doesn't look like there's a lot of solutions coming anytime soon on some of these issues. Yeah, I mean, it's it's top of the political agenda here at the moment. And something, something that's interesting is in this country, we sort of look down our noses at America and you guys is having you don't have universal health care and you know your healthcare outcomes are determined often by whether you've got a job how much money you have and we sort of get this we have this real sense of superiority in britain that we have this free at the point of use healthcare and everybody has access to it but actually now increasingly because of the state of the healthcare system i don't think we can really claim to be a country with universal health care anymore you know, I've, I've been in um, accident and emergency in Nottingham recently, and you've got people on beds in corridors, you've got people sleeping on the floors, you've got, you know, wait times of days now, in some cases, for accident and emergency care. Uh, and we've got, you know, we've got, uh, I think it's about 500 people a week currently dying purely because of the extended wait times for accessing care. And it, in terms of the solutions, I think we've we've got, there are a couple of problems here. One of which is that it sort of has to get worse before it gets better. And so I think that's the that's the dynamic of us feeling like it we can't really make it better, like there's no solutions to the problem because actually there's nothing that's going to make it better tomorrow. But there are a number of things that we can do reasonably quickly. So one thing that's being talked about a lot over here is that two that we could um, allow pharmacies to prescribe medication because they're not allowed to do that. So for kind of less serious illnesses you would be able to go to your pharmacy rather than your doctor and get a prescription for some medication from them and that's sort of we've got a big problem with um wait times for doctor's appointments as well so that would help out with that as well um and then other solutions like the fact that the, the nhs model really focuses on acute care and it doesn't focus enough on making sure people are fit and healthy in general and so preventative care and so there's a, a lot of talk about how we need to we really need to transition to focusing on that sort of care as well, um, because then you avoid this sort of crisis happening in the first place if you have a fitter, healthier population. Yeah. Jack Rowlett joining us. Let's let's have the grown folk talk about this, though, is because too much when you're talking policy wise, like when we're talking on a show like this or we're writing a piece, some of our friends use universal health care or government health care, single payer, whatever terminology you want to use. Almost like it's a magic word, like, oh, we'll just have universal health care and it fixes everything. Whatever system you're advocating for, if it's not well administered, it really doesn't matter because you're still going to have problems with it. And that's where we this thing kind of falls apart is like, look, it's it's not a magical incantation. If you're going to have universal health care, there are trade offs to it. You're going to pay much higher taxes. You're going to have limited options on your health care. You're going to have those trade offs, but it is free and everybody gets it. 
We just don't want to have those full discussions past the buzzwords sometimes. Like you just said, you've said it for so long. Well, we have universal health care. You don't. This is the risk of it in inertia. If you don't administer it, it really doesn't matter, does it? Yeah, I mean, if it's free but terrible, then there's not much point in having it at all. Um, and, and ultimately, somebody does have to pay. And that's uh, that's the sort of difference is, is ultimately care in America is rationed just as it is here. It's just here it's being rationed at random in a healthcare system that's sort of crumbling all around us, whereas in America it's more rationed on the base of your income or your job, right? Um, and and here there is a real we call, we often say in the UK that the NHS is the closest thing we have to a national religion like that's the sort of cult like status it has in the national psyche and for a long time any talk of reforming it at all immediately leads to suggestions that you want to replace it with an American style system and that you want to privatize it and you're going to sell off the NHS to private American pharmaceutical and and medical companies and so there are all these roadblocks to reform and and it's a lot of it is driven by the politicians because as soon as you have one party say okay well the NHS is a mess we need to reform it let's do a b and c the other parties come along and say ah no you want to privatize the NHS they're going to destroy it if you want to save the NHS, you've got to vote for us at the next election. And so nothing ever changes. But I think right now, the scale of it is is just unimaginable. I don't think people really imagine that we'd reach a point in this country where you are ringing 999 for an ambulance and potentially it just doesn't come and you, you end up dying in your home or your loved one ends up dying. And so I think now there is there is something of a changing attitude and people are acknowledging that maybe we do need a change to our healthcare system, and that maybe even, I, I think uh, our attachment to universal healthcare is resolute, but that maybe this model of universal healthcare just doesn't work with the aging population we have. Jack Rowlett joining us. See, this is the problem in healthcare in America: is the older you get, the more expensive you get. We're talking about the business side of it now. The older you get, the more expensive you get, and we have an insurance-heavy model for good, bad, or indifferent. So, you know, the young people have to pay into it, although they're not using as many services, broadly speaking, to take care of the older people. That's the problem. You already mentioned it. For folks that aren't familiar with the national health system, it was built, it's a post-World War II thing heavily. That's kind of the model. It was designed for that Britain, because that was the Britain that existed then, the UK more broadly. That's not the UK that exists now. There is the talk that it didn't keep up to the times as it was supposed to, that focused on acute care, not focused on things like preventative care or long-term care or even palliative care for the elderly. That's where you start getting into the nuts and bolts medical policy problems here. And that's where a lot of the debate is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's actually, it's been flawed since the start because, yeah, you mentioned it's a, it's a post-war model of healthcare. It's absolutely right. It was started in the late 1940s. But actually, the expectation of the government that brought it in was you would cut healthcare spending in the medium and long run as a result of bringing in universal healthcare because you'd treat people and so their conditions wouldn't get worse. But actually, what happened was the sheer scale of demand meant that actually healthcare spending has just risen inexorably since then. And we've reached a tipping point now because of those sort of demographic issues we've got so many people sort of over the age of 60 that and not enough young people paying taxes in and we and we've also you know we're rolling up the drawbridge and not letting as many immigrants into britain anymore so that tax base is shrinking and so demand on the nhs is just increasing inexorably as that tax base shrinks and no one has thus far been willing to reckon with the with this with this difficult problem and actually explain to the public well okay you've got the options of either we carry out a massive reform either we everyone just goes private and poor people no longer have access to health care 
or people pay a lot more in taxation. And these these um, reforms and ideas aren't always popular here because it's really hard to reform the NHS because of its place in the national psyche. Um, but actually, it's it's so urgent now. It's so urgent. You've got you know toddlers sleeping on floors in accident and emergency departments. You've got pensioners waiting four days, pensioners with suspected heart attacks, you know, waiting days for healthcare, dying on trolleys, you know, people in car parks here receiving care in car parks because there's no capacity inside the actual hospitals themselves. We just need to do something about it and, and reckon with the difficult truth. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Jack Rolla joining us on Herd Tell. I, when we have these conversations, I always, I always put my hands up and I was like, okay, I'll have the universal health care versus whatever debate with anybody you want to. I want to tell everybody two things about me, though. I lived overseas. I lived in Germany. I've been a German patient in the hospital. I've had a German ambulance pick me up. I know how that, the, that kind of model, the European model works intimately. I've been there. I'm also a VA health patient, Veterans Affairs patient, which is the government-run healthcare system in America. So I know the good, bad, and difference of all of this. If you live in Germany, you get excellent health care. But what we would call the middle class in America, you're also paying in the 40 percentile of taxes plus a 19 percent VAC tax to pay for all that. If you pitched America on 60 percent taxes, they would tar and feather you and run you out of town. You just mentioned it with the UK. There's no model of reform for the NHS that isn't involving raising taxes, but you've got a population problem at the same time. That's a math problem that has got to be solved if you're going to actually fix the NHS, right? And that brings in immigration. It brings in politics. It brings in the culture war stuff. That's an ugly ball to try to unwind. But the result of that is, is an NHS where it's really hurting people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one, one thing people don't um, seem to often grasp about Britain is actually our healthcare system. It, it's not a straight European model. It's it is it's free at the point of use and it's it's uh, it's universal. So. I think in America, you often associate that with, with Europe, but actually it's quite different to how the rest of Europe works. We have, we don't have any real insurance model at all, whereas countries like Germany and the Netherlands, for example, they do, it's a much more heavily regulated insurance model than you have in America, but there is a sort of social insurance system there. And so we, in a sense, we have the worst of all worlds with our healthcare system because it's massive and bureaucratic and run by the state. And you have all the problems that go along with that, but also the quality of care and provision of care is really bad as well. So it's 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 a massive problem, and the dem the demographics that you you've just mentioned. I mean, that is the biggest thing now. And and actually, it does it does go broader than the NHS. You mentioned immigration and the cultural stuff and everything. There there is a real there is a real generational divide here in the UK now. And actually, part of improving public services 
so the NHS, education, all those things. Part of that is making tough choices about, um, you know, letting more immigrants in and encouraging people to have more children um, and making policy more pro-family because that's how you improve, increase the size of the tax base in the short and medium term. And that's how you fund good public services. And what's most interesting is that the, the very people who rely most on the National Health Service, the sort of over 60s, over 65s, those people are the most unwilling to confront those difficult choices and make Britain a more pro-family country and make Britain a more pro-immigrant country. And it, it's a cycle of despair. Yeah, Jack Rowlett, we have the same problem here with what we call the boomer generation, They, they but we'll get into that some other time. Let's talk about that right there, though, because this is where this starts to cross streams into some other areas of policy. That young cohort, let's just say 18 to 25, post-school, post-university, you know, that group, we're seeing some very troubling data post-COVID coming out of the UK. They're having trouble getting jobs and they're tr- getting having trouble getting housing. You talked about the immigration problem. Look, it's an either or formula. You either have a high birth rate or you got to have immigrants if you're going to have an economy. You got to have one or the other. The people you do have can't get work and can't get housing to start their own lives and start their own. You know, housing is equity. Housing is wealth. These these are building blocks to your economy that we don't talk about as much as we do, like the unemployment rate. This is really troubling stuff for the UK, though, because the building blocks of the future economy for the next generation don't look real good right now. No, they they look terrible. And it, and if I look at people my age who are looking to get on in life, you know, smart people my age, all of them are looking at leaving Britain because they don't think that there are opportunities here and they don't think the country is serious about improving things. Housing is a real barrier. Housing, the state of housing in the UK right now is a disaster on so many levels. You have the level that it's really hard to buy for first time buyers, the cost of housing relative to average wages is it's it's about nine and a half times higher the average house price compared to the average annual wage and in london it's something like 20 times higher it's it's ridiculous there and if you go back to the 1970s it was about three times the average annual wage so objectively in real terms the cost of housing has gotten so much more expensive over the past half century or so and then also that's now spilling over into the rental sector so for, for a long time, you've had a situation where younger people, you know, people in their 20s and 30s have struggled to afford housing, but there was plenty of rented accommodation that they could find and stay in. And that's not it's not desirable for people to be relying on that forever. But actually, at least you had somewhere you could go. Now we're in a situation where there's such a dire shortage of rented accommodation in lots of our cities particularly university cities we have students coming into cities and there's you know waiting lists for accommodation there's queues all the way around the block to look around apartments you have situations where landlords are are actually renting apartments to the highest bidder as in the person who can pay the most rent per month rather than having a predetermined set amount and when you actually get into this accommodation a lot of it is really run down it's really bad it's damp it's moldy it's cold and so the, the, the quality of housing is really low. And because there's such a shortage, it means although we have laws around kind of minimum provisions that you have to have for accommodation in the UK, actually your power as a renter is minimal because you can go to your landlord and complain about something and the landlord's response will often be, well, OK, move out then. But you know you can't go anywhere else because there's nowhere else in your price range. You see your friends who are having to move back in with their parents because they can't even rent somewhere. Not that they can't even buy somewhere. They can't even rent somewhere. That's how bad it's gotten. And then that spills over into this 
intergenerational problem in that you have boomers here who own all the property essentially and they block new property from being built particularly in the places we most need it and so again that cycle of despair it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse that leads to less children being born it leads to lower productivity it leads to uh, lower tax take and that makes public services worse and it makes britain a less dynamic and versatile economy Jack Rowland joining us. The reason I bring that up is because you said Britain is under a generational change. Generational change comes whether you want it to or not, right? There's no stopping it. It's the, that's the tide of time when it comes to people. Generational change can be good or it can be bad. We're looking at these economic problems. We're looking at the NHS problems. We're looking at the political upheaval in Parliament right now in the UK. It doesn't look like this is going to be good generational change if you don't solve some of these problems. You have an or, a urban and rural problem. You know, the highest unemployment for the youth in, is in the West Midlands, the Birmingham, you know, the old industrial mm-hmm. sectors. It seems like there needs to be some pretty bold action here to cut off this whole generation going in a bad generational change instead of good generational change. But is there any movement to try to actually do anything about it? There's lots of grassroots campaigns, but at the top of politics, Nothing is changing. I mean, our government has just made it harder, in effect, to build housing by abolishing housing targets um, that were placed on local authorities here, which means there's even less incentive for local councils here to build housing than there was before. And we already weren't building enough. Um, Taxes here have been risen to the uh, the high they're now at the highest level they've been since the second world war and if you look at where the tax burden falls it's on working people and working young people and not on older people and so money is increasingly being given out to older people in the form of benefits from the state um and it's money from younger people that's funding that except that um the kind of dyna- the usual dynamics of history have been reversed. If you go back sort of 40 years, older people were tended to be in poverty at a much higher rate than the working age population. Now it's reversed. We have more than a third of pensioners here are millionaires. And the percentage of pensioners, retirees in poverty is considerably lower than the working age population now. And so things are being constantly rigged in their favor. We have um, here, uh, what we're dubbing the cost of living crisis now because the cost of energy is so high. And one of the things that the government's doing to help out with that is they're giving out payments direct to households, um, like a sort of amount taken off the bill of your energy. And yet, more money just goes to pensioners for that handout than anyone else. And it's not means tested at all, whether you're a rich pensioner or a poor pensioner. If you're old, you get a big handout from the state to help you with your energy. If you're a young person on a zero hours contract with a load of college debt who's struggling to pay their soaring rent, you get a lot less. And so the gov- and this, the problem for the government is their voter base is almost entirely the over 65s now. So there's no political impetus for them to make things better for younger working age people. Yeah, Jack Rolla, th- that's a universal problem. Every country has that problem. The older people are going to have more political power because they got more money, more assets, whatever. That's not new. 
However, you do have one advantage in England where you have a parliamentary system with outside some very specific judicial review. What parliament says goes, you know, you don't have a written constitution. So whatever parliament does, that goes. You could have some pretty sweeping change here if there was a political appetite for it. How much has the chaos of the last year or so really crippled people's belief in parliament? And I'm not just talking labor versus the Tories and that sort of stuff, just the chaos in general. That's where it really starts kind of hurting is because where you would look to parliament's like, okay, it's time to do some sweeping change here. And you're changing prime ministers every five minutes and you're just kind of sitting around waiting for the labor to get their turn. And you're probably not real super hyped that the labor is going to do a whole lot. That's a big problem of faith in government you've got when you really, really need them to be able to steady the ship, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the system's totally breaking down now. And if you look historically, when one party gets tired, there's tended to be a politician from the other party who is a kind of radical, dynamic leader who people can get excited about and get behind. And actually, if you talk to people in the UK now, no one feels excited about about any of them. You know, they're, they're all terrible they were all or not or not terrible necessarily but there's there's just a kind of apathy right you either hate politics or you just feel apathetic towards it here began and people look towards parliament and they look at we've had scandals um involving expenses we've had scandals involving drugs recently we've had scandals involving sexual harassment in westminster and people just look at them as sort of reflecting the worst of britain rather than the best of britain and so yeah i think people's faith in our politicians to actually get us out of this rut uh is very low right now yeah i had a labor friend uh quip to me like if all due respect to keir starmer he said, you know, if we had a labor leader worth anything, he'd be king instead of Charles after three, you know, conservative prime ministers having to resign in disgrace. Just, you know, it's stuff like that. Like nobody seems to be able to even capitalize on the other side, not being able to do anything. That's kind of I'm an outside observer. You tell me you're there. But when you can't take advantage of your political opponents, absolutely shooting themselves in the foot. I don't inspire a whole lot of confidence to me. I'm not picking a side. I'm just saying it looks bad. It looks chaotic. And it looks like even when this, you know, whenever you do have a general election this year, this fall, whenever that eventually happens, if Labor takes over, I don't really see anything really changing. Yeah, I mean, it, it should be stated that Labor are well ahead in the polls here at the moment. And Keir Starmer, for an opposition leader, is pretty popular. But there's that lack of enthusiasm. People are just kind of trundling along saying, oh, well, it's time for a change now. Conservatives have been really bad. Labour can't be any worse. There's there's no enthusiasm whatsoever. Um, but I think I think one interesting dynamic as well is that actually the last time Labour came into power, they did so on the back of a really strong economy. And so when they came in, there was lots of money to throw around on public services. There was lots of money to sort of improve things for um, lower earners, lots of money to spend on tax credits, child benefit, all these sorts of things. When Labour inevitably, I think, win the next general election, whenever that is, and it has to be before January 2025, we're going to have just come out of a quite long and deep, uh, quite long um, and relatively shallow recession on the back of a decade of really stagnant economic growth. And so there's, there's just not going to be money to change anything. I think we're looking at a wasted decade for Britain, really, now. In the 2010s, it was really cheap to borrow, and we chose to cut capital uh, spending. We chose not to build more housing. We chose not to confront climate change. We chose not to confront our generational crisis and the pressure that that puts on public services. And now we're in the next decade, a decade of high inflation, of higher interest rates, of real downward pressure on growth. And we're, we're sort of left with very few options, but to sort of 
try and push forward and make things better in the 2030s. It really feels like there's not there's no real change that you could make really soon that would improve things because there's there's no money and there's so many structural problems in the UK now. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. joining us that sounds bleak for uh, those of us look we got our own best in america i'm not going to pretend like we don't especially with what's going on in congress right now and we're in a presidential election cycle for 2024 ourselves so we will share some some guffaws if you want to send them our way to be fair what does and doesn't break through media especially inner uh across the pond here what's a few things for us maybe the international audience the american audience or even the british audience what should we be watching for beyond the headlines, beyond just PMQs, beyond just the nurses' strikes and the rail strikes? What's a couple of things we should be watching for as this year starts to unfold? Is it maybe having the, the election early? Is it maybe a new leader rising up through the ranks? What are you watching for that we should be watching in the headlines underneath all the noise? I think what's really interesting at the moment is, is Brexit, which has been out of the news for a couple of years now since we left the European Union. But what's really interesting now is people are turning against it here. We sort of have nearly 60% of the population saying that it was a mistake to leave the European Union and only around a quarter of the population saying that they think Brexit's going great. And we know from sort of trade figures that we're one of the only countries, uh, one of the only major economies where our levels of international trade haven't recovered from before the pandemic. And it's been long enough since we came out of COVID lockdowns now that we can sort of say that 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 might have something to do with Brexit. We've got problems at the borders. We've got problems in Northern Ireland. You know, the Northern Irish protocol still isn't sorted out. And I think for a, for a long time, 
the kind of Brexit wars was like an aspect of the culture wars and it was a real 50-50 split. Now it feels like people are decisively turning away from Brexit or certainly this hard detached view of Brexit and are actually more in favour of a closer relationship with Europe. And I think that will have an interesting effect on politics because the Conservatives have massively tied themselves to the, the strongest, hardest form of Brexit possible. But Labour have also kind of become a party of Brexit as well since the last general election. They of you know they're saying well we're not going to join the eu we just want to make brexit work we don't want to get that much closer to europe and so i think that's the interesting dynamic is what effect will that have on british politics as that stops being um as the kind of the 50 50 divide between remainers and leavers here stops being a thing and instead people increasingly are not necessarily wanting to rejoin the eu but are really dissatisfied with how brexit has turned out yeah, Jack Harlow joining us. Let's be adults here, though. That sentiment and undoing Brexit after the decade of getting to Brexit, that's two very different things. And plus, that's not up to just the UK anymore. We saw what the EU did since Britain and the UK has left. They're not exactly going to gift wrap a basket full of provisions for you to come back either. That could be even worse of a situation. There's a lot of mess there if they ever decide to try to go back down that hallway again. I wonder how much taste there would be for that if they actually tried to do it. Yeah, I think that that's that's one of the big barriers is that, I, I mean, if I were the EU, I wouldn't really want us back at this point. And and I don't I don't think there's much suggestion that we'd go in to Europe. Well, they want you back, but they're going to want you on your knees crawling back. Yeah, well, and economically, everything's going to be 70-30 their way, which I'm not sure that really fixes anything for the UK. I'm just being real about it. Like, mm -hmm. if I was them, I'd do it too. It's like, sure, we'll have you back, but everything's going to be in our favor this time. Yeah, and they'd want us to join the Euro and, and possibly Schengen as well. So it would be, we would lose a lot of the advantages we had last time we remembered the EU. But what I think could happen is there could be a move towards sort of a, a form of associate membership so joining trying to join the single market so rather than going back into the eu just having a closer relationship with europe's institutions again the terms that europe might demand from us if we try to do that might be too high a price to pay but i think there is an increasing sort of understanding in britain that maybe brexit either brexit was a mistake or we've just messed brexit up really badly i think that's increasingly becoming the consensus here yeah interesting times we live in my friend for our friends across the pond, Jack Rowlett, one of our great Young Voices contributors. He's a writer and commentary. He's all over the place. Great talking to you. Before we get you back again, let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you got going on, and how they can follow you until we talk to you again on Hertel, my friend. So you can find me on Twitter at Jack underscore Nostalgic, and you can find all my articles there, all my latest writing, latest appearances on British television and radio as well, and keep up to date with my thoughts on British and global politics. Yep, there's a lot of stuff on housing, which is really important stuff to pay attention to because I know we all got sick of infrastructure, but that's the infrastructure stuff that matters. Pay attention to it. Jack Rowlett, thank you so much for the time, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen. 
on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save